We're reading today from John chapter 7 and verse 32 onwards. It says this, The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by the saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. What would the greatest invitation look like for you? Can you imagine going to the door to open that letter? Picking up your phone to see that text or checking your emails, getting that phone call. I think you get my point, insert other mode of communication. Mine would be to be the, the guest of James Anderson, the greatest fast bowler of all time and the England cricket team for a test match at Lords. What might it be for you? Would it be to dine with the Queen? Would it be to meet a hero of yours? Would it be a singular experience, which will always serve as an excellent memory, a fun story, or that fun fact for an awkward icebreaker? Or would it be a moment that changed the course of your life? And I think in all the answers that we could have come up with, the invitation that Jesus makes to us is greater than any of these. And it's an invitation that when I accepted it, changed the course of my life, like radically changed the course of my life. And I believe that it will if you accept it too. It's an invitation beyond compare, a priceless invitation. And I believe it's relevant for us whether we would call ourselves followers of Jesus today or not. So let's maybe spend a bit of time exploring that together. So welcome to Everyday Church. We are going to um, continue in our series working through John's Gospel, which is an eyewitness account of the uh, life and teachings and actions of Jesus. 
And when we have a passage that opens as this one does, we might need to reverse a little bit. It claims, uh, it seems, sorry, that the claims of the crowd around Jesus are making the religious elite or the Pharisees a little bit concerned. And over the last few chapters of John, we see that tensions have been rising between the Pharisees and between Jesus over a whole number of things. But the starting point is where he healed a man and it's really angered the Pharisees. So going back to chapter five, he heals this man who'd been lame for 38 years by simply saying, rise, pick up your mat and walk. An amazing display of the power of God. And yet those looking on are questioning why he's doing it on the Sabbath. And their conclusion is a very simple one. Because he is breaking the Sabbath law in their mind, that he is a sinner and cannot be from God. And they confront him. And Jesus says that God is his father and that he is doing God's work, a claim that makes their blood boil. In chapter six, Jesus feeds the equivalent of around 10 to 12,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fishes, an amazing multiplication miracle with a young boy's packed lunch. And not only that, there's so much left over, he fills up 12 baskets for it, which symbolizes Jesus being all that the 12 tribes of Israel needed. And in this exchange afterwards, he points out that he is the bread of life. He is the food we need. Jesus is consistently making these bold invitations and backing them up with amazing signs. And they all point to one thing, that he is the Christ or the Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And earlier in chapter seven, which Elizabeth very helpfully unpacked for us a few weeks ago, we see that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the uh, Feast of Tabernacle and midway through heads to the temple to teach. Disagreement breaks out and it's over one simple thing. Is he the Messiah or not? So the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths kind of used interchangeably was one of three major feasts that the um, first century Jews would celebrate. And that was Passover or what became Pentecost known as the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. It took place over about a week and it remembered the Israelites' journey through the wilderness or through the desert for 40 years. They dwelt in tents or tabernacles, these kind of temporary dwelling places. And this feast was to remind them of God's provision of manna, which is bread from heaven and water for them to drink. It celebrated God's protection, his provision of food and drink and his preservation. And if you want some details about what this sort of feast would entail, check out Leviticus 23 and you can see all the different branches they had to use and the whole kind of deal. And it served as a symbolic reminder of a saving God who delivers his people. And it was the most celebratory of all the feasts they held. So think like 4th of July celebrations, Diwali or like Christmas, but like ramped up to 11. And in verse 37, Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast, the greatest day of the feast, and makes his invitation. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow out from within them. And John helpfully clarifies this for us. And he says, by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glorified. 
It's significant that Jesus picks this moment to make his invitation. The last day, the greatest day, the height of the festivities. They were remembering their ancestors' desert wanderings, including God's provision of water for them in the desert. Two quick examples, and all of these can be found in Exodus 15, 16, and 17, where Moses puts a branch into this bitter water at Marah, and it becomes drinkable. And in chapter 17, where he strikes the rock at Meribah as commanded by God, and water flows out for it to drink. And Jesus speaks. In this moment, Jesus says, come and drink from me. His invitation was um, to prompt the hearer of a God that provides. And in this moment, he picks up that mantle of the provider and says, come to me. His invitation points to his divinity. He offers satisfaction and he reminds them of provision. Jesus says, I am the savior of the world. I will protect you, I will preserve you, and I will fulfill you if you drink from me. And he cries out, accept the offer and I will give you forgiveness from sin, freedom from sin and wholeness. And I think this is made even more significant in the, in the context that we see it is, which is Middle East in the first century where water did not just flow out of a tap. It was heavy, it was hard work, it was scarce. And then Jesus goes on to make this remarkable claim of rivers of living water that will flow from within. And John helpfully reminds us that the spirit has not yet been given. He says because Jesus has not yet been glorified. And by this, he points us to Acts 1, where Jesus has been crucified. He's been buried. He's been raised back to life. And he gives his disciples this, distru- uh, this instruction, go and wait. And you will receive power from on high. Jesus, sorry. John points to the requirement for Jesus' death and resurrection before the Spirit is given. And I think there's four prominent ways that we see the Holy Spirit working in our lives today. And these um, also are in the lives of those around us. So we have salvation, sanctification, signs and wonders, and social action. And I've deliberately taken the same headings that Simon used in our last vision series, which was on Acts 1, and well worth a watch if you haven't seen it. But this is because God puts his Holy Spirit in us to transform us into people that bring his kingdom about in the areas that God has placed us in. So Jesus reminds us that the giving of the Holy Spirit was never just meant for us. It is meant to be a blessing that flows out from us, that he will be a stream of living water that flows from within us. And so have you ever seen the um, stream, a stream or a river from a high vantage point? I've got a picture of it on the slides. Um, and you see the impact that it has on its surroundings, the clear path it takes, the flourishing of wildlife and of plants around it. And it's in this exact same way we should expect that God would work in us and through us to impact those around us. So salvation, this is the moment where we accept Jesus' invitation. We come to him and drink. We proclaim that he is our Lord and our saviour We give our lives to him and say, I will live for you. It's the point where we are forgiven from our sins or our shortcomings. And we move from being dead to being alive. And Paul writes very helpfully in 1 Corinthians 6, but he who unites himself with God is one with him in spirit. 
And he points to this wonderful truth that when we accept Jesus' invitation that our spirits become one, they become intertwined. And then we receive forgiveness of sins, that we enter into the start of a relationship that will last forever. It is where Jesus' sacrifice on the cross allows us to enter into the presence of God, to be one with him and to enjoy him from this day until eternity. Sanctification. Jesus accepts us exactly as we are. Praise God for that. But he does not leave us where we are and praise God for that too. The Holy Spirit works in us to change us and make us more like Jesus. And personally for this, I am so grateful. I think of all of my shortcomings, my sinfulness, my failings. And I am so thankful that Jesus didn't leave me as I was. He's given me the ability to truly love those around me. He's increased my levels of compassion and empathy. He has given me the ability to... um, overcome anger issues and deal with issues of unforgiveness, to move from being totally self-centered and selfish. And that's just to name a few. And the best thing about it is he's constantly working on me and constantly um, trying to push me forward to be more and more like Jesus. And this all speaks of what the prophet Ezekiel speaks about in Ezekiel 36, that the Holy Spirit would change our hearts and our desires to live in a way that is pleasing to God where our lives, our choices, our actions and our responses all become worship to God, where we desire to please him and want to live out holy lives. He gives us the ability to be set apart, to live in this holy way for his glory and for the furthering of, our, of his kingdom. God does not leave us where we are and he is always working and he will never give up on us. So finally, Signs and wonders plus social action. I've put them together because as we are changed, we see our desires for justice and for mercy growing. And this flows out from us. And so Pentecost was this momentous moment in history where 120 believers were gathered in the upper room and they received the promised Holy Spirit. And this was the beginning of this river of blessing that was to flow out from believers. And from reading the New Testament and studying um, church history, we know that signs and wonders and social action were kind of cornerstones of their ministry. In the book of Acts, we see them caring for the poor, feeding widows, and even selling their possessions so none amongst them would be in need. We see miraculous healings and signs of God's power. And we see the advancing of the kingdom of God through ordinary people filled with the spirit of God. So what situations are you in? What situations do you see that needs God's powerful intervention? What areas of our society do we want to see lives changed where the poor, the needy and the marginalized are not forgotten? So my challenge to us today is are we taking Jesus at his word that he will pour out his spirit? Are we praying for his intervention in our streets, in our cities and nations? Are we praying for miracles, mercy and justice? We are all here today as a result of this river of blessing flowing out that was unleashed on the world. That The gospel spread from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth and accompanying that has been social change, has been reform and has been countless moments of of God working powerfully to bring about his kingdom. We are invited to be part of that story. Jesus' invitation for us all today is to come and drink. 
It's an invitation that offers not only satisfaction, but abundant blessing. We are offered satisfaction, but we're also offered that our lives will become eternally significant, this river of blessing. What an amazing offer. Isn't that what we are all looking for? Isn't this what we're all searching for? Jesus offers this. He says, come to me and drink. The rest of the passage shows us kind of four responses to Jesus' invitation. And ultimately, their reactions are based on assessing the credibility of his offer. When we receive an invitation, it's always worth kind of considering this. So you'll see on the screen that there are um, some offers that I receive on a near daily basis, which all rightfully end up in my spam folder because they in fact are not offers and are, uh, they're not credible and they're scams. So first of the responses, the convinced. These are the people that look upon Jesus and they say he is the Messiah, he is the prophet. They are convinced, they get it. They see how he conducted himself, how he treated others, how he spoke and the things he did in their midst and they were convinced. They see the man that was promised from the very first pages of their Bible, from their, from their scripture. The seed of Eve who would overcome evil, who'd be bitten on the heel by the serpent and crush its head. He is the one to save us from our sins. He is the one to reunite us to God. Jesus is it. This is the one that all of the prophets had pointed to, the whole of scripture. God's salvation for mankind from our sinfulness or our shortcomings. The one who fulfills the prophet's Uh, the prophecies, taking the punishment we rightly deserve. This is the Messiah, look at him. So I think it'd be helpful if I back up. You may be wondering which prophet, and it's the prophet. The first century Jews knew exactly what this meant. This was kind of like part of their vernacular or their slang. And in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15, Moses prophesied that the Messiah would be a great prophet from Israel And Peter goes on to quote this in this amazing sermon in Acts 3, which if you've not read it recently, you've got to check it out. It's a messianic prophecy showing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and the prophet who must be listened to and his words must be put into practice. This terminology was known to them. We see earlier in chapter 6 that after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world And again, back in chapter one, um, John was quizzed by the people, baptizer rather than disciple, and asked, are you the prophet? To which he made it really clear, no, I'm not, and I'm not the Messiah. But these people in that moment saw Jesus and saw he was the Messiah, they were convinced. Next, we see the cocky cynics. Seems a bit harsh to label someone as cocky or arrogant, especially as I wasn't there. But their response gives it away. How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Their responses of mockery, of scorn, of arrogance, this belief that Galilee was like this backwater town, was known for being backwards. And their response isn't simply just to question where Jesus is from, but to mock it. And in the same way that we saw Nathaniel did in John 1, speaking about the same region, They missed what God is trying to say and do because of their preconceptions of this place and their preconceptions of who Jesus was. So Jesus knew what it was like to face discrimination on the basis of where someone is from. He knows when we face this sort of mockery. He's been through it. He knows the pain we feel when it happens. 
They go on to say, does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the, the town where David lived? And of course they were right. What they're saying is totally correct. They knew that the prophet Micah had said 700 years before the birth of Jesus that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And Micah even prophesied that the Messiah would be everlasting and born in Bethlehem. They knew their stuff. So how have they got it so wrong? They've assumed who Jesus is. They've assumed that he's from Galilee and was born there. But he wasn't. He was born in Bethlehem. They haven't asked or listened. Their assumptions have closed them off from what is going on around them. And there is some irony in all of this because John wrote his account of Jesus' life well after uh, Matthew and Luke, which include genealogies that prove that both Mary and Joseph were from the line of David. And in both accounts, they they speak very clearly of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. John expects us to know this. So how could the crowd have got it so wrong? They could have checked the temple records or asked some of his family who would have been there for this festival. But they've rejected him on the basis of their preconceptions. Have you said no to Jesus without hearing him out? And finally, we get to the contemptuous and the curious. And the temple guards uh, report back to the religious elite And they are shocked to find the men empty-handed, men under orders to bring Jesus in in chains. And when asked why, their response clearly riles up the Pharisees. They basically say, this is the best preacher we've ever heard, and it's not you. Man, that's fuel to the fire for people who are already out to get uh, Jesus, their jealousy ignited. The guards point to a man who clearly spoke with such authority that they decided to violate their orders and not return with him. And when they say this to the Pharisees, their response is is very similar to the previous response. Are you deceived? How can you be that stupid? None of us who are intelligent, who are well-read, who are spiritually attuned, follow him. And as they say this, the irony intensifies, enter stage left, an old friend, do you remember him from chapter three? one of their own, who met with Jesus at night to ask him questions, who heard him out. Nicodemus is an example of someone who is curious or in process. He has taken the time to research, to think, and to question all of this, and he's trying to work it out for himself. And he is one of my favorite character arcs in all of scripture. Whilst neither this passage nor the passage back in John 3 definitively shows Uh, what Jesus thought, I think that John 19 does. Nicodemus comes with a lavish gift, well uh, well above the amount of spices used to bury someone, exceeding that even of a rich burial. This is a burial fit for a king. Nicodemus is there burying his Lord and Saviour. He has worked out who Jesus is. He has become convinced. All because he took the time to be curious, to investigate, and to think about all of this. Then Nicodemus chimes in and asks the question, should we not hear this man out? The Pharisees resort to the same sort of discrimination that we'd seen earlier and basically call Nicodemus thick and backwards. The same man who was referred to as a teacher of Israel, one of their own, all in their determination to shut Jesus up 
in the fullness of their rage, they start getting very selective in their memory of scripture. Look into it and you will find, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. But yet there were at least four prophets that came out of Galilee. Jonah, Nahum, Hosea and Elijah. And two really stick out to me. Jonah who prophesied of Jesus' uh, death, burial and resurrection through being in the belly of a fish for three days. And Hosea who had a prophecy that God would raise his people on the third day. And they missed this. Out of their fear, jealousy and desire for self-preservation, they rejected this. The very scriptures they claimed to believe. So what about your response? Have you written off Jesus on the basis of faulty evidence or just rejected it immediately? Do you need to explore this some more? Do you need to see where the evidence will take you? Or you may have heard Jesus' invitation to us today and said, I want that. And if this is for the first time or even um, like diving back into it, ask for his forgiveness. Ask for the living water that will stream out of you. And if that is your response, please do tell someone so they can pray with you. For those of us who have put our faith in Jesus already, this might be the moment to ask for more. Do you believe that God wants to pour out his spirit upon us for the furthering of his kingdom? Or are we limiting God? I think it is time to come to him and drink deeply.